Oscar Poker. It was late last night when the boss came home To a deserted mansion and a desolate throat Servant said, boss, the lady's gone She left this morning just for dawn You got something to tell me, tell it to me, man Come to the point as straight as you can Old Henry Lee Chief of the clan came riding through the woods and took her by the hand. The boss he lay back flat on his bed. He cursed the heat and he clutched his head. He pondered the future. Okay, I was just talking to um to our mutual friend Pete Hammond about some things <coughs> to start our conversation off. Okay. And this is our first. Uh, this is the first post Toronto, first right into the into the fast lane of, of the award season. This is it right here. And I was talking to Pete, and I said, "So, what do you think's going on here uh, uh, in in the wake of Toronto? I mean, uh, you know, you know, Manola Dargis did something really, in my opinion, I, I truly feel she did something horrific uh, the other day. I think it was yesterday by writing, in her opinion, that um, that uh, Anna Karenina." Is a uh, fiasco or a, uh, a disaster or something? What did she? What travesty. was the term that she, she said? Used it was travesty. horrible. She, uh, she it told a, it a oh, travesty, travesty or something, yeah. something uh, like that. And this is a movie that that made yes, the word is travesty. And this is a movie that made me feel um, so turned on and so uh, glad that someone was doing uh, uh, an adaptation of, of a classic writer like Tolstoy in in this manner. You know, and it made me feel like. This is Ken Russell time again. Uh, the nerve, the pizzazz to do to 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 deliver a classic tragedy, but within the perimeters of a theatrical experience that doesn't stay theatrical and allows the the players to you know move out into the real world and real sets, and then goes back to the theater. And the, it's really just delightful. Is it and, really Ken Russell like though? Yeah. I haven't seen it. I can't wait to see it. But if it's Ken Russell like, I mean that. That's like, you know, shock you to your core kind of cinema. That's like, you know. Oh, there's two Ken Russell. And Margaret run, rolling around in, in peas and beans or whatever <laughs> she doesn't tell me, you know. It's like. There are two Ken Russells, remember. There is the BBC Ken Russell of Song of Summer and dealer, and, and then moving into, let's say, the Music Lovers or right around there, the Devils. Right. And then after that, he became excessive. Somewhere around the film Mahler. And certainly, by he was by the time he was making Tommy and Listomania with Roger Daltrey, then he became uh, kind of consumed by his excessiveness. I right. think so. I, but he was restrained in the early part. That's the the one I'm referring to. Mm, well, that the music wonderful. Lover. I love early Ken Russell stuff in that way. It's good Ken Russell, and it's also you know Joe Wright is really a, a powerhouse. He's really a guy who's who's going to do something. Even Hannah, you know, I thought was Hannah was. Was uh, with the with the um, was it in what's the name of the brothers who did the uh, soundtrack? Yeah, Industrial Brothers. The Mechanical Chemical Brothers. The what? Chemical Brothers. Chemical brothers. Yeah. Sorry, I, I, I just thought that that film had something extra, and I said this is a film by a guy who's really um, even even the Jamie Fox uh, Robert Downey thing. Um, that's not coming to me either. What was that called? 
I don't remember, but it does. <laughs> We're it does, both blanking on that. <laughs> it does seem like you're trying to, that that he is trying to break out of the Joe Wright oeuvre. You know, he's trying to be with Hannah, and then now with Anna Karenina, he's definitely trying to undo his reputation for making these kind of classic English or British yeah. films. You know, but um. Well, well, I've seen it, Jeff, and I was as dazzled and as transported as you are, but the people who were with me were not, and that was shocking to me. I saw it last Tuesday at the first L.A. screening. <clears throat> I was just just thrilled and, and, and exhilarated by this yeah. really thrilling, amazing uh, staging of this, and right. everybody who packed in the elevator with me, a bunch of industry people we all know on a first-name basis, right. not critics, but industry people, were all saying, oh, it was dazzling to look at, and they were all kind of saying, without wanting to insult the uh, the studio there, that, in other words, this isn't best picture material is what they were saying, oh. but it's certainly you know, beautiful in the terms of the crafts, and I'm thinking... Wow, that's not the movie I saw. I saw this really fantastic and artistic experience, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think it. I don't think it gets into best picture. I don't either. By the way, you guys are talking, but um, uh, only because best picture is so weird now with with the the way that they're choosing it. I mean, it it, it was so much easier to call when we had five or when we had ten, but now that it's like some weird number in between, and you don't know what it's going to be, and it has to only be number ones, and you know. It's a little bit harder to sort of suss out what people are going to pick, but a divisive film isn't likely to get on so much as a broadly liked. Well, I think it's criminal to 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 put a film down that is so uh, excitingly different and tries to really uh, stir things up and, and get get a fresh reaction out of you. I, I mean, this is what you live for. You you live for movies that don't put you to sleep, that you know put that adrenaline into your system. I'm just appalled. I, I mean, can't Roger Sterling at the Santa Barbara Film Festival. He feels the same way as I do. Mm-hmm. There's Tom. There's, I, I, it's one thing to not say it's best picture. Okay, it's not best picture material. It's, I can live with that. But it's certainly a lovely film, and I was delighted with some of the stuff. And to hear that people are, are like, eh, not really. You know, I, I, I don't know what, what, what do they have inside them. How, how can they well, say that? Well, even worse than that <laughs> is calling it a travesty. Which, I, well, know. that's that. I mean, that tells me that. Either she's going to write a really nasty pan of that movie, in which case it's best picture chances are dead, dead, yeah. dead. Um, but it also tells me that it's it's inspiring extreme reactions, and that makes me interested in it. That's why I want to see it. I love. I I, I was just saying that if it inspires, I, I I trust your instincts, Jeff. I really and Tom too. I really think both of you guys think outside the box, and um, you tend to you don't really like things just because other people like them. Like you really genuinely embrace um, non traditional storytelling. And that's what interests me about this. So uh, I'll be curious to see it. I'm, you know, the the Manola Dargis uh, yeah. dismissal of it is is worrisome in terms of the Oscar race, but but it nonetheless sounds like a, a bold film and yet another bold film for 2012. Which we've uh, had and I got to so say again, Sasha, we say this every year, and I understand where you're coming from when you talk about the term real critics. You you separate in your own head. What you do and what I do and what Tom does, we are kind of just sort of, you know, online spirited blabbermouths. But the <laughs> real authorities, the, the gods, the, the people in the robes and the, and the high headdresses are the actual bona fide critics for major print 
based and you know mostly you know adapting to online but you know they're, they're basically the companies that were you know going big time as organizations in the you know 80s and 90s and before and are and of course are still with us you have this belief that they are better they know more that you well, I, I or, no, you know, I don't think they know so that's bullshit I know? don't think that's what it is that's not how I judge it how I judge critics which yeah. I, I separate from bloggers and film writers is that critics aren't supposed to be advocates you know and we are we're advocates and right. uh drew mcweeney is an advocate and but that's that's a lie sasha because they're everybody has their own personal things they they dress it up in this right. kind of impartial critic you're uh, right that's ease, true but you know i'll give you that that's true but i i i like to think that there's still a, a holy institution of film criticism where they are just genuinely judging the film on the film and not and the, but we know that's not true we know everybody has biases and, right um but that's what do you why, think, that's why i make the distinction that's all i'm trying to say what do you know, the, the question is is it an, you know we we do things slightly different from those those film critic critics that you're talking about and sometimes they're in sync with the academy like the hurt locker which surprised me that year i'm still mm-hmm. trying to get over that that they that, that the academy went for a movie that was that gritty without you know without major stars it was a box office failure etc cetera, etc cetera. the question is what do they go for this year and i think the academy will respond to that movie uh jeff i think i i wouldn't be concerned i think that's more of a crowd that'll that'll We'll certainly get the, the the artistic ambition of the movie. Not if it gets trashed by the critics, it, it won't. Oh. oh yeah, yeah. If if Manola Dargis gives it a terrible review and then other critics follow suit and it gets turns up rotten, you know, like with a like a forty or fifty score a Metacritic, there's oh, no way yeah, it's right. going to. I mean, unless it's a crowd pleaser, that a crowd pleaser can overcome that, but it doesn't sound like it is. It sounds like no. it's difficult, challenging material, which. It's just—it's a tragedy where it doesn't end up happily. I mean, is that because that means automatically challenging? We can't watch it. It's kind of a downer. It's going to be dismissed because it's Anna Karenina. I don't think so. I think by what Manola Dargis must mean by travesty is that she, that that Joe Wright has raped a classic novel. Joe Wright had the balls two weeks into pre-production on this film. I'm not talking about conceptually. You know, let's make this in six months. Two weeks into pre-production, or or maybe even three weeks, to say let's throw out everything and conceive this movie as a theatrical experience that we're actually going to show as a play, and then we'll gradually broaden it out and we'll make it. You know that that's amazing. That's that's the kind of uh, you know gusto and brio that that, that serious uh, gamblers and serious filmmakers who believe in themselves. That's that's the kind of thing that I just think we sh- we we need so much of, you know, mm. in our world today, particularly with a corporate influence on movies. Yeah. And to call it what he did a travesty, that's a travesty, I yeah. think. Well, it's really horrible, yeah. you know. Well, I'll be curious to read her review and to see the film. I'm seeing She's it not, soon. She doesn't know anything, Sasha. She doesn't know more than you do. She's just Manola Dargis. Uh, you, you're misunderstanding me. It's not that I think they know more than I do. It's it's that I think they have more impact on what other people think than I Because do. we think they do. No, they, she writes for the New York Times. That's important. So, when, what do they know? Oh, all these great reviews came out about the master, right? What was the only review people out there in the world were talking about? The A.O. Scott New York Times review. They weren't talking about anybody else's reviews, and I read. I liked his review, but I read better, much better reviews than his. Glenn Kenny's was better, way better. And, um, I mean, in my opinion, I'm sure not in other people's opinions, but because the New York Times is the number one most read online magazine or newspaper or whatever. I think that my comment about the master being about 
that says we are bears, we are all bears. <laughs> okay, I think well, that's, that's as good as anything any, anybody yeah, else said. That's right. I don't care what there. anybody says. The, no, it was good. I don't <laughs> think it was. It was great. It was audacious. Uh, you know, audacious. But this is we're living in a world that is uh, digesting bites and sentences and twits and uh, tweets and you know we're not talking about people that sit down and digest a 10 or 15 paragraph review anymore. This is not 1980s, this is not 1995. It's a different world. I know, but there's still an intellectual know anything There's still an intellectual elite elitism and the intellectual elitism is generally centered around New York, New York Times, New York film critics. It's, it's still there. It hasn't changed. I said go with the revolution, ignore all the power centers. It's lovely to have the people yeah, who are that's beautiful not, writers, you know, that's great. Right, you know? but that's not the Oscar race. The Oscar race is we're talking about sheeple. We're not that's <laughs> like That's funny, sheeple, that's funny. Well I'm just saying it's, if you want revolution, artistic revolution, right. you can look to the Oscar race. You know, that's where things get muted down to the lowest common denominator of the least offensive film of the right. bunch gets in and wins, you know. We're we're shutting out poor Tom. Tom is our guest. We're being I impolite. Know. We really are. <laughs> no, I'm having fun listening to the two of you right. go at it. It's fun. It's great. All right. Okay, Tom. I think the number one. Here's my <clears throat> ten likeliest but best picture nominee. Let's just start off okay. at the top. I mean, post Toronto. I don't think there's any question about it. I don't think it's. I'm not saying it's going to emerge at the end of the road necessarily because there's a problem that people traditionally have with comedies, but I don't think there's any question that Silver Linings Playbook is in the top slot right now. Right now, I, I think it is. Ahead of Argo, ahead of The Master, you tell me if I'm wrong. I, I think it's, it's, I've never, I haven't felt this kind of reaction uh, to a screening um, of people that didn't know exactly what to expect in a long, long time. I mean, we're talking <laughs> something that is going to be as effective, I think, with critics and with I kept mentioning Moonstruck when I was up in Toronto. I'm starting to think more and more about Moonstruck. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel about the film. I don't remember it all that vividly, but I know that it did very well in a in a award sense. Did you happen to see it yet, Tom? Silver Linings? Uh, no, I, I for the first time in 15 years missed Toronto, so okay. I had to follow this experience online. Uh, right. It it sounds exhilarating, but it doesn't sound like it has the gravitas. Uh, to win, right? It's being a comedy. We know the problem that faces at the Academy. But it's not a comedy, though. It's a, uh, as I say, it's a, it's a movie that's really about um, uh, fairly unstable people and this kind of uh, craziness that you would, you know, not not literally people who are unable to function, but people who are very impassioned in a, in a somewhat irrational sense about what matters to them and what they want out of their lives. In um, any case, uh, what, the way I said is that today uh, I, I rewrote, I said basically it portrays crazy as a state of exceptional openness and illumination in the same way that R.D. Lang regarded schizophrenia. Hmm. It's, a, it's got a new idea, which is that I think that if we are honest with, our, with ourselves and with our friends, we all have our uh, exceptional passion moments, our crazy moments, our uh, high anxiety moments. It's all part of our of our life. It's communally and individually. But this is not a what you would say a boring, flatline, stable time. And these people are really out there in terms of their emotions, in terms of their longings. And it's and it's also very, very uh, contentious. And it's uh, very much of a of a kind of a neighborhood. Philadelphia sports watching movie and it's also about dance and it's uh, really about falling in love it's one of the best love stories I've ever seen so it's not just you know just a comedy I understand what you're saying about comedy comedy 
it's a, it's got a lot more going on than that. That's why it, it, it uh, sounds like kind of tonally, like as good as it gets. Is it sort of along those lines? Um, that's not too bad, but um, that's a. I don't think that the analogy is there because as good as it gets, uh, you know the pacing of, that James L. Brooks likes to use. That took its time in getting there, and right. that really kind of. Uh, started to pay off big time when Jack Nicholson put on the suit and he said, "You make me a better, want me to be a better man and all that." It's not on that level. It's it's a that's a more settled down film. That's a uh, you know um, Greg Kinnear's performance. Uh, this is this is a lot more jaggedy. It's a lot more it's a lot more of a movie that's on Klonopin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds to me like. Um out of the gate, the Weinstein Co. Uh, wins this round because they they were smart, incredibly right. smart, as Ann Thompson schooled me on Twitter about this. They didn't come to Telluride because Argo was going there, and they knew that they needed to up their game a little bit. So it was like Argo had Telluride, but then they were going to take Toronto. And take Toronto they did because everybody going into Silver Linings had the lowest possible expectations, and that is exactly what you want with an Oscar Best Picture winner. That's what we've seen with The Artist, The King's Speech, even The Hurt Locker. Right. Um, the lower the expectations, the people mm-hmm. who go in thinking this is not a quote-unquote Best Picture movie or an Oscar movie or anything, because as soon as you raise your expectations, the movie has a really hard time meeting and then exceeding them. The one film I think that's going to be expectation proof is The Master because I think it does it does live up to the hype. But um, the best thing you, experience that you could have had in Toronto was going in, seeing yeah. a movie you had <clears throat> not thought was going to be a big Oscar movie, and then being so pleasantly surprised. Your right. pleasantly surprisedness was a, is a lot of what is generating the. So we now, so myself and Scott Feinberg and everybody who went up there have now ruined. Silver Linings playbook. You haven't ruined it. You haven't <laughs> ruined it, but you've given okay, it a little bit of a harder. Thing you had in Toronto, and they're going to go. Hey, wait a minute. This isn't quite as good as I. You know. Well, we, did you we read? Killed. Did you read um, to, um, Steve Pond's interview with David O. Russell, where he said they wanted to stay an underdog as long as possible for the next yes. two months? That yes. tells you everything you need to know. That tells you that Weinstein Co. is totally on their game. They know exactly what they're doing. They're so smart. Yep. And that they know that expectations kill everything. They killed the yep. social network. They killed Benjamin Button. They killed um, mm-hmm. Avatar. It's like you can't – well, Avatar maybe did okay with those expectations. But Lincoln is basically ruined by expectations. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Les Mis, forget it. Les Mis, the expectations are you know so high. I don't know how the movie's ever oh, going here's, to. Here's to whether it's killed Lincoln. Lincoln has been killed already by John Williams' music in that trailer and by the voice of Matthew Modine coming out of Daniel Day-Lewis. All right, well, we can talk about Lincoln in a minute because I totally disagree with you, but I just wanted to finish on Silver Linings. I think that um, I think it's definitely in... Right now, it's to me, it's it's up there. It's like a, if it's not number one, it's right up there tied with Argo in terms of which films have the most buzz coming out of, uh, out of festival right. season. But... Um, right. But that we have a long way to go, and there's a lot more right. movies to open. And, and uh, it, in terms of it being the People's Choice winner in Toronto, uh, only four films since 1979 have gone on to win the Oscar after winning. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely not a guarantee to win that. It doesn't mean that much, but it does have at least those three or four, two or right. three precedents. So you're right. It, it does not mean that the... much necessarily. But I'm telling you, this has it. Well, as opposed and, to uh, the L.A. Um, and I the... saw it twice, by the way. I went the next morning. I was so delighted with it. 
and it works just as well the second time. So I'm going um, yeah. to yeah, only tell you that I hope I haven't killed it or helped to kill it, along with everybody else who loves it. But Steve Pond loved it. Everybody loves it. And now it's going to, no doubt, underwhelm you, Sasha, when you see it, I'm sure. It probably yeah. won't. It sounds like it's my kind of thing. And, and also, um, bipolar is is really <laughs> hot right now. <laughs> I love that. That's that's the line of the uh, of the podcast so far. Bipolar is the thing that's going to connect with audience. Well, it is. Everybody's sort of dealing with it, and it's kind of the, it's kind of the one thing that has never been addressed in the Oscar mm-hmm. disability race. You know, it's like every other disability has been challenge, has been taken on pretty much, even stuttering, and now schizophrenia, and uh, and now yeah. we'll have right. um, and and you know. Now we'll have bipolar being discussed. Right. So just tell me one thing, and this mm-hmm. is a spoiler for listeners, so skip for two minutes. Mm-hmm. Does he get on meds at the end, or does he stay crazy? Uh, no, he he uh, goes on the meds about midpoint. He finally realized, okay, I got to take the meds. Okay, all right, good deal. So that, that's that what that's what in. saves it. If he stayed on the level yeah. that he's on during all the first act. <laughs> Uh, you, it couldn't sustain because you're just saying this is ridiculous. You know, he can't even control himself to the point that he's got to talk about an Ernest Hemingway novel with his parents at four o'clock in the morning, waking waking him up because he's so shattered that Ernest Hemingway had to kill the the, the girlfriend right. in the farewell arms or whatever so, he's reading. I'll tell you how oh. I think it's going to go. I think what's going to happen is the Weinstein Co. will deal with David O. Russell's temper tantrums as a way of saying he kind of maybe has bipolar, and then the whole discussion on the Oscar race will be talking about the mental disorder by having bipolar, and that is catnip for Oscar voters. <laughs> so well, I'll tell you, he does understand edgy, edgy, antsy mentalities. He, yeah, David probably, Russell does have that in him personally. Yeah, and he's probably he, bipolar. He delivers that in the film. That's part of the authenticity of it, I right. guess. And, no. But apparently Harvey Weinstein found the book and gave it to him, so uh, I, I have a feeling that there's some kind of going to be some sort of image makeover happening for David O. Russell. I don't think he needs to be made over. He was made over by the fighter. It's over. You can't... No, because wasn't he... You can't wasn't keep beating it, people that sick over and over again, Sasha. Have you know, ever done anything it, wrong or made a mistake? How would you feel if people... I, I don't, I'm not talking about me. You I'm every, talking about... Every six months for okay, one so mistake you who, made. Who, was, who the, was the one that everybody thought said who laughed when Tom Hooper won for the King's Speech? Wasn't it supposed to be David O. Russell and WGA? He laughed laughed when tom hooper won yeah well i thought it was kind of funny too didn't you or at least it was it i'm was, just saying i'm, I'm just he, saying he has a bad boy reputation and and oscar voters tend to be like i like this director so much he's such a nice guy <laughs> <laughs> well i agree with uh, anybody who who snickered or or uh, you know made any kind of dismissive sound when when uh, when Hooper won, and uh, you know, uh, I just don't think Hooper did a good enough uh, film. But that's that's we don't want to get into that again. But we know anyway. we don't. But but I, I think that I agree with what you say about it. I mean, I have to see it, but I, it does sound like I think that the, what I'm trying to say here, muddled as it is, right. is that the bipolar part of it is is sort of what makes it serious, mm-hmm. and that's what gives it gravitas that Tom's talking about. Okay, we're, we're shutting Tom out again, though. Yeah, I'm no, sorry, you, Tom. Yeah, you, no, I no, no, I'm enjoying listening to this. Uh, you know, th- there is a precedent for the dysfunctional family movie winning Best Picture, of course. Like, Terms of Endearment might be a better analogy for a James Brooks movie, right, Jeff? Or yeah, does that that's work? A, that's, that's, again, Brooks has a way of delivering his... He's a settled-down personality. He, uh, Russell is much more agitated in his emotional states. This is... Uh, this, And it's much more about sports and about... Uh, juju and the, and the spirit of things. It's really about 
flights of uh, intellectual and emotional fancy rather than what Brooks is about delivering core emotions to sink into you. It's not the same thing, but it's but you know I could I could go with an, something that analogizes terms of endearment to some extent, but Brooks is a much well, warmer fil- filmmaker than David O. Russell all is. All of Jim Brooks's movies could have won Best Picture. The only reason Terms of Endearment did was because it had that like gut-wrenching sob fest at the end. I mean, it mm-hmm. was like you walked out of there soggy-faced, you know, it wrecked yeah. you. And it's still, I can still, to this day, I can barely watch that movie because of the end of it. But... I don't think uh, Silver Linings goes there, right? It doesn't go that to that kind of sorrow? No, it does not. <laughs> Nobody dies. Um, but it's, uh, but it, it's, it's one of those things that builds and builds and builds, and you think, well, this is funny, this is funny, this is funny, and then it starts to pay off in the third act in a way that you don't foresee. So that's the thing. Any movie that holds back and then you don't see it paying off, and then it starts to pay off, that's a surprise. Right. So that's what everybody was responding to, basically, because it, it's it's really the second and more particularly the third act payoffs. It's pretty emo- it's pretty amazing that they kept all that from us in Cannes. Like when we saw the footage in Cannes, it, they didn't show any of the dancey, feel goody nope. stuff at all. It was just co- kind of looked like a kind of a quirky comedy with. Yeah. Um, uh, exactly. Right. And according to Ann Thompson, they didn't plan that. Like they just didn't know what movie they had, and he was editing it up until the end. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if um, if uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein helped him. You know, Harvey Weinstein's a good at, at being an overseer in terms of editing, or if he had nothing to do with it at all. You know, mm-hmm. I just don't know. But I wouldn't be surprised if he got a little bit of help from from Mr. Weinstein in terms of steering it toward a, toward a more emotional right. direction, since he's not really known as that kind of a filmmaker. Got it. So I'm kind of feeling like we're all, all of a sudden we're trapped here. I. I mean, all this time that you think, oh, this is the exciting time and all the good stuff starts to be shown. But I feel we're trapped in a way. What it's boiling down to is that we've got the uh, perennial beast of the southern wild. We've got uh, silver linings. We've got Argo. That's three. Moonrise Kingdom. It's up there. Uh, I don't don't believe that is, frankly. Uh, It's a huge hit. And um, it's going to be Focus Features as main. But I don't think that, yeah, I'd be sub- really surprised. Um, uh, so you feel one way, uh, I feel another. Tom, what do you think? I loved it. Moonrise is one of my favorite movies of the year, and I think the Academy will respond that way, too. I do. But, I worry, but, but where, where you're going with this, Jeff, I know what you're saying, that a lot of things are falling in. in, in I think certainly the Master, Beasts, Argo, and Silver Linings look like four of the best picture locks so far, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so, yeah. Uh, uh, friends, uh, good friends. I won't be specific, but his wife went to see the master on her own. She's a pretty sharp uh, person, by the way. Uh, total professional and you know tough and smart and everything. She went to see it. She absolutely hated it. Oh, I mean, no. she was like, yeah, you know. Uh, so there's that element to consider. But I still think the master is just too penetrating, too powerful, and it's the kind of film that's going to play very well to people watching it 10, 20, 50 years from now. Absolutely. And I, I think that the Academy being the mostly male, greatest generation, this is going to yeah. be right in their wheelhouse. You know, it's totally from the 40s. And, you know, it's just... Uh-huh. I mean, it's a great movie. I think right now it's the best film of the year. But um, I don't see that as a period piece. I see it really. Uh, it's like I, I was saying that as Stanley Kubrick used to say to all of his actors, uh, "Realistic is good. Interesting is better." 
That's great, really. Oh, he's yeah. so good with actors. I guess that mm. must be the reason why. But um, but okay. I, I feel that to- that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson told Joaquin Phoenix, "Look, man, I want you to be be some kind of serpent. I want you to be some kind of alien. You know, don't play normal guy. You know, just trying to strike common chords. Be as interesting as you can be. And he, that's what that performance is about. I mean, there's nothing he does that 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 isn't interesting, that isn't fascinating. You could watch it over and over again. But uh, if you were to re- encounter a guy like Freddie, uh, Freddie Quell in, in real life, you'd probably think about moving to the other side of the room. Or, <laughs> I know. I love know. that character so much. I, I think I love him maybe more than any character I've seen in like 20 years. <laughs> I love him. I, I'm, I'm going to go see it again. And, and Me pay too. I can't and, wait. Uh, I can't wait. Um, um, you know, it's so great. I think right now we're seeing we have best actor is Joaquin Phoenix and best actress is Jennifer Lawrence. That We have yeah. our two winners now, and, and it's up to the other people coming in to challenge them. But I'm not seeing anybody that's going to challenge Joaquin Phoenix because his not very many coming up. Well, there's Hugh Jackman and there's uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Those are the only two really strong up. Anyway, to continue with my theme or my feeling, which just happened wait, last wait, night. Can I in ask this him moment. if he agrees with that, Tom? Do you agree that it's that it's Joaquin Phoenix and Jennifer Lawrence? Uh, yes, uh, I haven't seen the Jennifer Lawrence performance, but she is the classic uh, ingenue, reaching that perfect stage, and she fits that that. Uh, it's right out of central casting, best actress win, and and Joaquin is is now redeemed, and it's such a big, ham-fisted, uh, deeply felt performance on this epic scale for him. I I think he's almost unbeatable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't see how. No, I feel I'm feeling like it's down to what's. I mean, suddenly there's this very short list of films that I'm very excited to see, but I don't think. Apart, from, I think the Les Miserables is, Miserables is going to be. Uh, 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 Really good, I, I expect. I, I'm, I have a belief that from having heard from people about Zemeckis's flight, that that's excellent. And I, but I, I wonder well, really yeah, about whether Denzel. Denzel's up there in Best Actor too, but Denzel's yeah. already won, and uh, Daniel Day Lewis has already won. So, yeah. But I'm really feeling weak, uh, weak vibes about uh, Zero Dark Thirty and Life of Pi and Lincoln. The Zero Dark Thirty, I have, I have a sense. Is just going to be a good stirring procedural about how this was done. There's no particular crazy character like Sergeant James and Hurt Locker. Uh, from what I understand, it's a team effort. It's really about uh, intelligence and and uh, you know strategizing how to find Osama bin Laden and then finding him and then killing him. So I don't know how. Did where you that's happen to go, watch no? the um, the 60 minutes where they devoted the entire thing to the t- Team Six? Um, capture bin laden okay it's a total edge of your seat suspense story i mean if i i'm that's the one i'm most looking forward to be just because when i when i heard that guy talk about this thing i mean it was it was so bizarre how it all went down first of all there was a woman who had been on the case for years and years trying to get to find bin laden Mm -hmm. the way they found him was so interesting like they didn't know it was him they had to just guess Uh then they get the call from obama to go in well, to go in, they have to land the helicopter exactly on the right angle mm-hmm. on this ledge so that, A, it doesn't crash, and, B, they don't alert people to what's going on. Right. And then when he talks about going into the compound to get bin Laden, I mean, it's, it is like, whoa, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's going to stir up a lot of controversy. 
um, it's going to make a lot of liberals mad because they basically kill people just without asking questions. And who's going to be mad at, at killing people who had anything to do with 9/11? What's what's the problem with that? Oh, you know, people who accuse Obama of being a warmonger and um, people who think that it's bad to celebrate the death of Bin Laden. Um, there are well. people like that, but but when okay. they when the team goes in, you should watch that sixty minutes. They devoted a whole episode to it. It's so right. interesting. Um, okay. So all of that tells me that it's going to be a really meaty, really good film if she sticks to the story. Well, here's hoping. I'm, I'm certainly hoping, and we all know that Le- Le- Miserable is probably going to be. But I I, I got to say this is going to um, be great. That, uh, it's going to be great because he's the perfect director to direct it. If you pick somebody like Spielberg or um, Boz Lerman or someone who's kind of has a gift for overdoing. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be. I wouldn't be looking forward to it. But Tom Hooper is the opposite. He kind of blands things down. Yeah. So if you take a melodramatic story like Les Mis and you take a director who blands things down, I think you're going to have a really nice balance of. Uh, I, I don't know. That's just my opinion. But. Hey Tom, have you? Uh, I've been told that the singing in Les Misérables is uh, actually on-set singing. It's not, uh, you know, recorded first and then they lip-sync. Do you know anything about that? No, I'd be surprised if that's the case, given how difficult it is to get audio just right. That's why they have to do all that looping in films, you know. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, this came from a colleague of ours I just heard this morning. I didn't. That sounded unusual. Why would they do that? Why make it... Why compromise the sound of, of, of these songs and the, and the orchestration? So, I don't know, but that's what he said. Uh... There's also the, um, uh, of course, we don't, nobody knows anything about Life of Pi, but I, I'll, I've heard that it's, uh, you know, it's basically a metaphor for spiritual discovery, for spiritual satori. It's about a guy sort of finding, finding God, uh, in a way. That's, at least that's certainly how it can be interpreted. Hmm. And if you read the book, I think that's what the general uh, uh, analysis uh, is. But um, I'm starting. But the two things that are really throwing me about Lincoln are the the music, which tells me that it's the same Spielberg, John Williams, schmaltzy manipulation, which feels bad, really bad to me. Uh, and and secondarily, I I don't know how to express <coughs> except to say that I was that I think we all associate and bring a certain uh, almost mystical quality to our expectations of what. Uh, Abraham Lincoln would sound like and I just do not feel good or satisfied about that voice that Matthew that um, <laughs> uh, Daniel Day Lewis is using and it just doesn't sound uh, intriguing it's it, you know, let me make two examples if George C. Scott in Patton had decided to do the actual voice of George Patton uh, go on YouTube and just listen to him speaking he's made he, he did speeches and you can hear him that voice is not commanding it's not charismatic and if george c scott had imitated him it would have been awful for the movie it would have not have been a hit movies do are not about they're not documentaries they're about their persuasions their symphonies their recreations and i don't feel good about this performance and i'm saying this as a huge fan of Daniel Day-Lewis's performances <clears throat> over the years. I've loved his voice that he used for uh, for uh, There Will Be Blood. I thought his Bill the Butcher in um, Gangs of New York was fat. I loved his voice as the 
<laughs> Did you ever see um, Goodbye Girl? Do you sure. remember when Richard Dreyfus in the Goodbye Girl plays Richard the Third and <laughs> the director makes him talk in that voice that he hates so much and all he wants to do is say, now is the winter of our discontent. <laughs> he can't because the guy wants more authenticity for Richard the Third. Um, that's sort of what this discussion reminds me of. I, I would just ask you to, to reserve judgment until you see the whole film before you make that decision about Dale Day-Lewis. It's too important of a subject to dismiss. Well, I'm committed to not seeing the film, Sasha. I'm just going to sit here and react. <laughs> no, but you, do you have to just go off half-cocked after a trailer? I mean, I, I don't think that you're, I, anybody can dismiss your concerns. I do think they're legitimate. I just don't think that it necessarily will ruin the movie. Here's my concern. Let, let me do some bashing before the movie's even started. I, I've, I've, I've been very skeptical of the whole Daniel Day-Lewis uh, casting of this movie because he's going to bring us the Bill, uh, Bill the Butcher sensibility because he, he loves those big, bombastic, you know, kind of uh, brooding performances. And I read an awful lot about Lincoln, including a lot of the people who debunk him. And there's a whole fascinating theory on, uh, of another way to take the whole Lincoln legacy as, as possibly being our worst president. That's a whole separate conversation, but fascinating. What I was hoping that we, this movie would do was would take us into some of these alternate views of Lincoln, or at least help us discover to meet the real man. Abraham Lincoln was a comedian. Abraham Lincoln is a man who worked the, the, um, uh, the circuit as a lawyer in the state of Illinois by telling jokes in taverns and really cr cracking people up. He was a warm, sensitive guy who looked like a baboon, but won everyone over the minute he opened his mouth, and I'm sure didn't talk like Daniel Day-Lewis in this trailer. But the point I'm trying to make is, like, for example, a famous joke of his was when someone accused him of being two-faced, he said, well, frankly, madam, if I was two-faced, would I be wearing this one? You know, and, and I was hoping that we were seeing some of that humanity in this movie, but apparently not. Apparently it's going to be, No, I, ho I, I hope not just a history lesson. I disagree with that because I'll tell you why. Um, when I watched the, uh, the conversation with Spielberg on the Google groups thing or whatever they did after the trailer, um, he talks about that because his, the thing I love about it and the reason I'm such a huge supporter of it is because Spielberg is trying to do what Doris Kearns Goodwin's, Goodwin did in the book is he's trying to do exactly that. He's trying to portray Lincoln as the man the, the way people have never seen him. And he talks about his humor and he talks about how funny he was. And he ha apparently had a really low, weird, booming laugh. And when he started laughing, it was hard to get him to stop. <laughs> I mean, he seems uh. like kind of a weird dude, Lincoln. But um, mm. I think that they are taking that on. I do think that you okay, will great. discover. I just don't think they wanted to put that in the trailer. <laughs> He's like a Jew, a cat. Like and a pigeon walk into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Can you please explain the strategy uh, that makes sense? All right. Can you please, either of you, explain the strategy of the trailer with a with with apparently another actor reading Abraham Lincoln's words as we watch Daniel Day Lewis's back of his head and then him looking out at this uh, train yard and some guy kind of uh, walking away. It's not Daniel Day-Lewis reading that speech at the very beginning. It's some other actor. Do you have any clue what that's about? Um, I, I guess we'll know when we see the movie, but I, I assume that it's a freed slave. Maybe it's somebody in the but, modern era. But why? Why the fuck would they have some other person, a freed slave, a, a soldier, a, a cabinet member, anybody, speaking 
Abraham Lincoln's words for the very first time we see a teaser for this film. Obviously, we want to hear Daniel Day-Lewis, we want to know what he's like, and we hear somebody else talking. Well, they, they wait until the end to show Daniel Day-Lewis as Lincoln. All the way through, you hear these voices, and you go, is that Lincoln? No. Is that Lincoln? No. That's Lincoln. And, and it didn't hit with you. You thought it was a horrible voice, finally, when you heard it. But I think with me, it was, and other Lincoln fans, it's going to be great because finally somebody actually portrays Lincoln's voice the way he must have sort of really sounded. All right. Now, and, and let, let, let me also uh, throw this out. Uh, you can go online right now and look up Robert Lincoln and, his, and Raymond Massey. Just put that together. Robert Lincoln visited uh, Raymond Massey backstage <clears throat> in New York in the 1920s. I think it was around 24, 25, something like that. And he was full of praise for Massey's performance. He was, you know, and at the time, Robert Lincoln, who was, uh, I think, in his 60s, possibly his 70s, but he was an older man. Uh, and he was so taken with, with Massey because he said, you sound so much like my father. Hmm. Uh, it's right there. You can find it anywhere in Google. So if, if, if Daniel Day-Lewis had decided to channel Raymond Massey, that would be interesting because at least there would be that. Or if he had decided to. Well, they're going by actual texts of the way people described his speeches at the time and what they said his voice sounded like. Interesting thing about Lincoln is everybody made fun of him. He was so um, repulsive to a lot of people. Like they just thought he was ugly and they made fun of his wrinkly clothes and his pants were too short and his hair was matted to his head and they hated his nose and his profile and right. his cheekbones and he was too skinny. But when he spoke, he won people over by his charisma and his, mm-hmm. his. He's like a lot like Obama in that way, you know. Obama is all those things in a way. He's a good-looking guy, but it's when he speaks that you really are captivated by him. And right. I will be curious to see if Daniel Day Lewis is able to pull that off. That's a tough one. Okay, here's the quote. It's from, uh, uh, it's from one of the many pages you can find. But early in Massey's career, Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln, born in 1843, died in 1926, heard Massey perform and was struck by the close similarity of Massey's speaking voice to that of his father. So. Nice. So there you are. Well, I, guess I just think there's something to that. They have to, you have to consider. You have to at least... Um, and I, uh, I just, uh, I also felt very um, these these kind of Amistad vibes from the trailer. Uh, also, um, uh, everybody seemed to be saying, "Gentlemen, we have a duty to to live up to the to, history is calling us to end slavery, and that's what we have to do." That sounds like a real history lesson. That sounds like something that I do. I'm not going to be enthralled by. All right, well, in this year of Lincoln, I put this challenge out to all of us, and it is to, to investigate the biggest debunker of Lincoln out there, a man named <laughs> Thomas DiLorenzo, and okay. it's D-I-L-O-R-E-N-Z-O. You can okay. either go to YouTube and look, type, type in no, Lincoln and DiLorenzo and watch his lectures, and right. he, will make, he will make the case that Abe Lincoln is the worst president. Well, he's up there with uh, Stalin and Hitler as one of the worst <laughs> people of all time. Oh, really, it's a fat, and not that bad. <laughs> But a fascinating argument he presents of of have we been duped by what he calls the Church of Lincoln, who mm-hmm. have been uh, uh, make, turning this man into a hero, when in fact, if you if you knew that what he said in his first inaugural is that he was guaranteeing 
a Thirteenth Amendment. This this new Lincoln is about the new the the, the final Thirteenth Amendment, where slavery mm-hmm. was pushed through Congress. That's the whole mm-hmm. purpose of the focus of the of the movie. The actual real Lincoln presidency began with a with an inaugural address where he was promising the first Thirteenth Amendment, which was that slavery would forever be enshrined in the U.S. Constitution with a provision that it could never be taken out. That there's the, and and that that is actually the case. There mm-hmm. is this uh, other way to look at Lincoln's legacy, which is just fascinating and fun if you're into all that and it's uh he had two books one called the real lincoln and the other book called lincoln unmasked and it's just that's great such interesting a crock stuff. of horse shit. I'm sorry. No, it's true. It's uh, he did matter of fact Lincoln no, initiated listen, the uh, first thirteenth Amendment himself as a way to keep the union together. You can't judge a man in those times by today's standards. In fact if you had gone into that election the year he was first elected president, you could not say publicly that you believed slaves, black people were equal to white people. Even Seward, who was the the most staunch um, opposer of slavery, in fact, of all the guys running for president, Lincoln was the least opposed to slavery of the bunch. And he became president probably because of that, because he seemed moderate. But as when he took office, and throughout his presidency, he became more passionate against slavery and was able to be more outspoken about it. Mm-hmm. But um, the interesting thing about Lincoln and the interesting thing about reading that book and why it reflects our times now is the passion and anger from the South about what freeing the slaves did to them and how they were willing to murder a president over it and how after slaves were freed how they how they the the tactics and the laws put in place to keep black people down were just astonishing and it went on until the 60s it still goes on in a subtle way in this country i mean the legacy Mm -hmm. lives on there is still a a war between the south and the north about black people i mean it's it's bizarre but Mm -hmm. it took a brave guy like lincoln to say at first, we're not allowing slaves into the new territories. That's what it was about. It wasn't about freeing slaves at first. It was about, we're going to um, have this new union of all these states, but we're not going to let slavery go into the new states because even when America was first founded, they felt that slavery was a stain and something to be ashamed of and that they, they can't very well have a... Uh, Constitution or Declaration of Independence or to, that says all men are created equal, but then we keep all these men enslaved. Mm-hmm. Right? But so, that's not why they were stopping the slaves in the new territories, uh, Sasha. They were stopping them, and it was the Republican platform back then be, that to be the white man's party, they called themselves, so that there were, the white people could have jobs in the new territories and no slaves would be there to challenge them. The Republican Party of that day, the, the story you don't hear was that it was, it was also vehemently anti-Catholic party. I mean, it's just this is a whole separate discussion of how history gets uh, whitewashed. I believe that Lincoln did... Uh, that he was in the in the minds of uh, people like Du Bois and others called Lincoln a, a racist, a white supremacist, and I believe that he wanted to see slavery go away, and that it became a gradual discovery throughout his presidency that ends in a happy place. That he really did saw an opportunity, seized it, and rammed it through. But I don't believe he's this great liberator that we uh, that we enshrine him today. Not at the outset. Well, you, if you, I'm sure then that it sounds like you've read a lot of stuff about Lincoln, which means that you must have read his writings. Yes, um, at the time, <clears throat> and 
it's, it's hard to use the term white supremacy for, for back then because basically that's what everybody was. They were that's all true. white supremacists. They didn't see that black men were their equal. They just didn't see that at all. And they couldn't even say that publicly. We, you're right that, that we, we, you know, we, we, we give a lot of nobility to Lincoln that he probably didn't have. You know, like we do tend to think of him as someone who was more sympathetic to seeing black people as human beings than he was. Um, but, and, and Seward and, and Brown and people like that that were opposed to slavery were opposed mainly on religious grounds. It wasn't so much there are equal. It was it's wrong to ha- keep slaves because God says it's wrong or whatever. I don't know why. But, but that's the other great lie about the Civil War. Let me just get this off my chest. And that is that the thing that people never talk about in terms of, you know, why were those Southern boys fighting for slavery? They, how, how could they possibly uh, consciously be doing that? They really believed, and this has been whitewashed historically since then, they thought they were fighting for God's cause. When you read Jefferson Davis's uh, autobiography, the end, his, his explanation is we were fighting for the holy cause of slavery because the Bible in many places calls you know, slavery wonderful things. It says, servant, obey thy master, etc., uh, if you read Uncle Tom's Cabin, in the first 20 pages is mostly a religious argument about how wonderful slavery is because the Bible tells us so. And the historic accounts of the Confederate soldiers going into battle were clutching Bibles because they believed the Bible, Jesus wanted them to do this. Pope Pius IX was writing encouraging letters to the Confederacy from Rome because he thought they were fighting for God's cause. That's so distasteful for to us today to look back, but that's the fact. Well, and here's so another horrible fact is that a lot of the men fighting for this cause of slavery, they themselves did not own slaves because they were not rich right. enough. So they were right. fighting and dying for rich men. The other thing was, you know that they didn't think that they were Christian because they didn't baptize them at birth. They separated the children from the mothers and sent them off to different plantations. I mean, at, at death, they didn't give them an actual funeral. They would never give them a funeral. They would never baptize them. They did not give them religion because they were not considered human, full human beings. But the interesting stories of the time were, you know, one of them in particular was a woman was brought to a free state, and she was the daughter. She, she came with her father and master, her father and master, right? Disgusting yeah. as that is to comprehend. She wanted to escape because it was a free state, and she, she went for her freedom. They found her. I mean, a lot of the stuff brewing before the Civil War is a lot of what causes the conflict in thinking about, the, about slaves because she escaped in a free state, you know, and how weird to live in an America where there was free enslaved states, right? But when the slave guys caught her, they, they sent her back, and the case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court denied her freedom, and she had to be sent back and be a slave. So, I mean, that kind of stuff going on, you'd have to be an idiot, and Lincoln was not, to to realize that slavery was coming to an end. Sooner or later, it would have to end. He just happened to be there when it came time to say, to hardline and say, okay, yeah, we're ending it. I haven't got to that part in the book yet, but... But when Lincoln was a lawyer in Illinois, he actually defended slave owners who were to, to get their slaves back. Anyway, there's a real other history here, which, and that's what's great about this movie coming out. Is I hope it gets everybody to discover the other side to the argument, because when uh, John Wilkes Booth jumped on that stage at Ford's Theater screaming, Six Senator Tyrannus, he really believed he was, he thought America would cheer him because he thought he was liberating America from this tyrant. It's fascinating stuff. Hmm. 
Yeah, but he was he was a he was a southerner though, right? He was against yeah, yeah, freeing yeah. the slaves. But um, I, I think that you can't take credit away from Lincoln for what he did, and you can't take credit away from his the beautiful speeches that he he gave at the time that that ended slavery. I mean, he really did change the way people thought on a global scale, and his death, weirdly enough, also did that. Yeah. All right. All right. So, I'm afraid I have to. Um step out uh, now because uh, I'm afraid I have an appointment with a rug guy coming over and I have to <laughs> and I also we're in the middle of a, of a fairly intense heat wave and I came home to discover that my air conditioner was completely not working and I asked the woman who a very nice woman who is staying here and uh, uh, taking care of the cats uh, why did when did this happen when did it stop working oh about you know four or five five or six days ago so, so I said, well, um, and I, I'm, not, I'm not very good with, um, you know, mechanical stuff, so I didn't know what to do. So, well, you could have called me. I would have uh, called the management company. We could have, you know, could have started the ball rolling, started the process. Yeah. But she didn't uh, do it, so I'm oh, now no. facing it. It was pretty horrible last night. It was the hottest night I've ever spent in my life. Oh, God, it's, Jeff. Oh, I can imagine it. Imagine how hot it is in the valley. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you add a good ten degrees, right? I mean, you're—I yeah, mean, it's yeah. pretty brutal. Right? It's been brutal. It, it started out cool this morning, but now I can feel the heat start to creep back in, and I can tell it's going to be another hot one. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, it's hardcore. The heat is hardcore. But yeah. um, so, is there nothing else we can? There'll be tons of stuff, but we can't keep just keep going and going. And <laughs> uh, I mean, I, we could—you know—basically, we're we're basically saying that uh, you know. Um, I, I just don't. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to feel trapped. I wish there were more films that were maybes, and it feels like there's what we know now plus three films, and that's it. You know, it just seems like it's only October. It isn't even October, and that's what we're down to. Um, yeah, but we still oh. have Django coming up. We can count on Quentin uh, livening up the uh, of right. the race, and, and Zero Dark Thirty has the promise of being a great movie. Focus Features keeps telling us how fantastic Promise Land is. They're right. jumping in there boots as they talk about it maybe maybe one of these will really you know and the hobbit you know maybe one of these will really God, change things forgetting about the hobbit you know what's funny is that tom can you remember a year i can't when it seemed like the oscar race was pretty much settled after toronto and then everything changed because i mean this is like the first time in a while that we've had all these major films opening after toronto yeah you're telling me that the hobbit which has uh, shown no shame in breaking it up not into two films but three films is going to have any kind of uh, those guys are just complete sluts to to, to talk to. <laughs> well if it's good it's good right i mean you just never know well the, the last uh, hobbit story in three parts did okay didn't it yep sure did best picture all the way down the line one two three so mm. you got to assume that it's at least and i always forget it when i'm writing about best picture always oh can okay. i ask you one thing really quickly yeah. You know, I was looking at Ann Thompson's predictions, and she keeps putting in the sessions. And she has it for picture, director, actor, supporting actress, and she doesn't have Beasts of the Southern Wild in her in her top. Does she feel that Helen, wait a minute, she feels Helen Hunt is supporting? Yeah. Oh, okay. But do you think the sessions is a best picture contender? No, it's but it's certainly uh, best actor and best supporting actor. If you want to call Helen Hunt a best supporting, that's fine. 
that, yeah, on an acting level, without question. But the problem with the sessions, I'm sure you've read this quite a lot, is that when you compare it to the other films about an immobile fellow who can't really move and is um, uh, kind of stuck in, in a bed or stuck in a wheelchair, like Diving Bell and the Butterfly and uh, um, the Javier Bardem um, film about the guy who wants to commit suicide, it was called... Oh, oh, God. Um, Before Night Falls? Yes, or no, no. Before Night Falls. Yeah. No, was that it? No, that was not... That no, was no, 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 the, no, the, the, the age thing, right? Oh, God. Um, it's um, uh, Inside the Oceans or the, um, in, in the, the Sea, sea inside. inside. The Sea, sea inside. inside. Oh, my God. But those films used uh, uh, flourishy, uh, imaginative uh, camera work to kind of suggest or create, recreate the spiritual energy of this character. There is nothing in this film that does that. It is straight, flat uh, filmmaking of a very routine, uh, not, a, not, a, not a problematic, but it just doesn't have any imagination. It's just flat, static shots of people talking. And so it's really a, um, it's not a directorial thing. It's not really a movie thing. It's a performance thing. So I don't understand why she's got it in her strongest best picture contenders. She's pretty smart about the Oscar race. I wonder why she's... She was moved by it. It's a moving film. It's not a, a arid experience by any means, but it's not a very uh, exciting piece of filmmaking. It's just good writing and very good acting. Hmm. Okay. So. Well, does anybody know when we're going to start seeing trailers for... Les Mis and I mean Les Mis is the only one we haven't seen a trailer for right pretty much oh wait I, there is a trailer for Les Mis there is yeah it's Anne Hathaway singing right well, and you can't you can't mind. really call that awful teaser for Zero Dark Thirty any indication that was kind of a mistake actually they put out this thing that's all scattered kind of you know static shots of computer screens and data and then they have somebody saying so when's the last time you saw Bin Laden you know twice they say it just to make sure that the dummies out there understand that it's about Osama bin Laden, but it well, made me, it, it killed my, uh, my enthusiasm for it. It really took it down. Oh, really? Not me. God, watch that 60 Minutes thing, Jeff. Watch that. I think it'll make you a lot more excited. The real story, I'm, I, I'm, I don't doubt for a second, Sasha, that the real thing, and I'm sure that they're going to do everything they can because Mark Bull is a very, very resourceful and dogged investigator, and he got, I'm sure, whatever the story delivers on its own, Mark has captured it and then some, so... I'm sure yeah. it'll I'm be fine. I'm excited. I really am. I, hey, Tom, I hope you join us again because I'd like to finish our Lincoln discussion. <laughs> when I finish <laughs> okay. the book, I, I have this finish. whole other. It's, 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 it's really fascinating. I, we should do a podcast just on the other Lincoln <laughs> uh, point of view and uh, what he was really fighting for, which is the right. whole t tariff fight mm -hmm. about the whole tariff theory of why the Civil War really happened. It's fascinating. I don't buy it, but I just love the whole uh, outrageousness of the alternate point of view of our history. Well, I, um, I, I chose as our book club, um, Team of Rivals. Man, that book, it's like climbing Mount Everest. I mm -hmm. swear to God, I'm only on page like 600 and I've still got, you know, 400 to go. Right, uh, so I don't know if I'll ever finish it, but once I do finish it, I want to um, talk to you more about Lincoln because I'm sort of learning as I go uh, about him. You know, with with reading Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, but also doing my own research on it, and you know, doing some investigative work because I, I find him so fascinating. Just yes, he wasn't the guy back then to say black men are human beings. He wasn't that guy. But if you accept that at the time, that's just how people thought. Then you can start thinking about what Lincoln was like. Do you know that when he was um, 
a little boy, his his mom died, and his dad went off to go find a new wife and left him and his sister alone in the house, and she had to take care of him. She was about 11 or something. Right. And when they came back, the new wife uh, and the dad, they, they were like forest kids. Like, they were like living like animals. They were so yeah. dirty. And, I mean, he went through some incredibly difficult things growing up. And he, you know, he just had an interesting life. He was a thinker. Right. He read all the time. He was, um, mm-hmm. he was like, you know, Seabiscuit. He was an interesting kind of flawed sure. hero. But, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, I don't know what Jeff's doing. He's like, he's like, Jeff's worried about his rugs. <laughs> he's interviewing R two D two on the other line. Oh. Also, I have to go out and physically buy a new air conditioner myself. I have to go to either Lowe's or Sears and pick one up. I have to figure out how to take the other one. It's a wall unit thing. I have to put it, take it out, put it, put it in, do the whole installation thing with duct tape and. It's going to be a whole big deal, and I'm concerned that it's going to eat into my filing time. And it's, so. yeah, yeah. but I got to do it because it's not comfortable. I cannot live like this. I hear you. I couldn't stand it either. My, I'm glad I have air. I don't know what I would do without it. How did William Faulkner and all? How did all these writers who got through Los Angeles weather without anything but fans? How do they make it? I know. I wonder about that myself often. Mm. I don't know. Well, they had they had ice boxes, actual boxes with ice that cooled things down a little bit. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, it was nice talking to you both. Same yes, here. It was nice, nice, nice uh, hearing from you both. And I'm. Oh, by the way, the the Lincoln screenings, as I understand it, uh, are going to begin sometime in the vicinity of the 25th of this month. Sometime. Oh my God. So it's not so not too far. Wow! Excellent. Really, the yeah. pressure, the pressure. <laughs> if I were them, I would, you know, I would say do the same thing. Show it only to the rubes, like they did with Warhorse, and uh, and just I wouldn't show it to the critics at all. I would just say, say this is our 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 guy. This is the legend and a man that you all believe in, and we do. So just see the movie, and you know, you, we don't need to show it to the critics. We're just going to make trouble. So. I hope they show it to me. I want to see it. Well, we gotta we gotta see it together, the three of us. Jeff and I saw Warhorse <laughs> together last year, and, and Jeff Jeff is so much fun to go see a screening of a Spielberg movie with because the minute the uh, the, the the lights went up and uh, uh, we were sitting there, Jeff turned to me, threw his arms in the uh, in the sky, and screamed, "Pete Hammond is crazy!" Because <laughs> he had liked Warhorse. Uh, so if we if we see this together, we get to see Jeff erupt into some. Uh, <laughs> Some, uh, I'm not going there sort. looking to be an assassin, looking to be a problem person, or to be a person that throws their hands in the arm just because of Steven Spielberg. I really want the film to be something. I'm, I'm not trying to be a jerk here. Yeah. I love good films. I love when they're made well. And I love great performances. And, you know, just like all of you. So, you know what I'm saying. I'm not yeah. going there with an asshole attitude. I really am not. But I fear what... I sense. Well, I'm feeling things from the from the trailer. I know the trailers always lie and they always misrepresent. So you have to kind of just, you know, just put that away. But I'm I'm very concerned about this. That's I'm, it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I thought I thought it was to me. It was sort of fine. I mean, I hate Mitt Romney's voice because to me his voice does sound like it's just mm-hmm. irritating. But um, yeah. I like Daniel Day Lewis's voice. I. I liked his portrayal of Lincoln that I've seen so far. You know, I just I think he's doing a really good job, but 
And right. I hope it's not a huge embarrassment. I hope it's as great as the as the book. You know, Tony Kushner wrote this thing, so it's not like we're in Warhorse territory. Warhorse had like the worst source material. It was like some kid book, some dumb right. kid book, and it was supposed to be just a kid book. And the whole thing about Warhorse is that it was this great stage show because they had these puppets, but. Mm-hmm. Turning that into a movie was like there was no there there. The only there Spielberg could come up with is to make the horse like a human, which didn't work, you know. But in on stage, it did. It just didn't work in the movie. Yeah, was- but, 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 but to bring our conversation today to full circle, well, while I was watching Anna Karenina as a movie, there isn't much there there either. It's the story of a of a you know a woman who cheats on her husband and then and then uh, is conflicted and rejected by society, and we all know how it, it ends. And so I kept thinking, this is what you do when with this. When there isn't much there there as a story. You recreate it as a filmmaker, as Joe Wright did, and that was that's thrilling when they do it. Uh, Spielberg went too literally with Warhorse, and uh, let's see what he does to Lincoln next. Mm. Yeah, but but Lincoln does have a there there, and it, it's written by Tony Kushner. So how bad could it be? You know what I mean? That's true. Like, yeah. It, yeah. It, if Spielberg sticks to the script, I have a feeling it's going to be very good. Maybe his best film in a while since he's working with a really really good screenwriter. I think that makes yes. a difference with some director. That's the one thing that makes me feel that this has to be. Uh, something considerable. Uh, please, uh, please, God, I hope it is. So. Well, good luck with your air conditioner. I hope it all works out okay. I'm actually glad you're getting a new one because you should always sort of replace them. The old ones have a lot of poison and toxins they put into your... I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I am going to get a healthy one if I can. Uh, and, um, and I certainly don't want to shorten my lifespan because of the type of air conditioner I have. So. Yeah. I, I actually didn't know that. People are, are, are going to the hospital with the wrong because they use the wrong air conditioner because no, they've actually found evidence of this, you're saying? I, I don't didn't know. know. I've, I've just, I remember reading a long time ago that you should replace your air conditioner after a while, especially the, the in-window kind because they, okay. they build up a lot of weird toxins and stuff. I don't know how true it is, but that's just what I heard. But. All right. Okay. So. Well, thanks. Um, right. So let's talk next week, and okay. uh, and I uh, look forward to seeing. It. So, Sasha, you going to go to anything this week? You're going to go to um, uh, end of watch tonight. There's a, a screening of, of Trouble with a Curve on Wednesday. How, are you going to go to any of that? The, um, the end of watch looks really funny. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, I'll probably see that. I I'm seeing in. I have a lot of screenings that I've RSVP'd for, like Looper and Anna Karenina and stuff like that. So I'll probably be catching up on those. You're not going to go to the Clint Eastwood. I didn't get invited. I, I guess because I've been so anti-Clint that they didn't invite me. But um, I didn't get an invite either, uh, Sasha. Yeah, I haven't heard anything from it. But I, I've been pretty outspoken against Clint Eastwood during this whole election, so I'm not surprised that uh, I'm not on their list. I got an invitation to some Anna Karenina screenings. Um, now that you mention it, and uh, I think they're all. Um, let me see. Uh, they're happening this. Oh yeah, right. To Thursday the twentieth and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. great. So I'll be. I can't it. wait to see it again. So. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. I, I love a, an interesting channel. I mean, I, I would have thought that it was given it was Joe Wright at that subject matter and and Kira Knightley that it would have been totally by the numbers. And I'm really surprised to hear it isn't. So. Right. Right. Good on him for for thinking outside the box like that. Mm-hmm. You know? All right. All righty. Well, have a enjoy the rest of your guys' day. All right, you guys. Well, okay, guys. Thanks a lot. Catch you later. Talking to you. Okay. Bye. 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 
You've been listening to episode 92 of Oscar Poker with Jeffrey Wells from HollywoodElsewhere.com and special guest Tom O'Neill from GoldDerby.com and Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. And the bumper music was, too, by Bob Dylan off his new record, Tid Angel and Long and Wasted Years. Thanks for listening. Oh, these long and wasted years. 